In the spring of 2017, if you were here, you, you may remember that we introduced this series called Bloodline. Church, can you say Bloodline? Bloodline. Our intent with that series in the spring, which, is, which was our Lenten series that took us all the way up to Easter, our intent with that series was to follow the lineage of our Savior Jesus and to specifically discuss that there is a whole lot of scandal in the bloodline. See, sometimes I think we get locked into this idea or this perception that Jesus, because he was the son of God on earth, he came from earthly perfection. But what we talked about back then is that's very much not true. That just like our families, there was a whole lot of dysfunction. Oh, it's just my family? Bet. I'm alone today. It's okay. (laughs) This time around, we want to take a little bit different of an approach. We want to still, as we lead into our Advent season, we want to still talk about the lineage from which our Savior came. We want to talk about that bloodline. We want to talk about that family history. But we want to take a particular approach that tells the stories of some women that are in the lineage that sometimes get overlooked. We want to tell the stories of some of the women of the bloodline so that we can testify to God's faithfulness and power, even in the midst of a patriarchal society. So I invite you to turn with me to the book of Genesis, where it all began. Not all the way to chapter 1. We'll go to chapter 18. But Genesis is the first book of the Bible. So it's real easy, if you have your physical Bibles with you, to just open it. And if you don't, you have your electronic devices. That's cool. Uh, It's at the top of the drop-down menu. We'll be in chapter 18. If you don't have any of those things with you, it's up here on the screen. We're going to read verses 10 through 12 together. Scripture says this, The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in year. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my, and Lord, and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? If you've been around 3rd Street, for a while, and I'm talking about Third Street before it was community church, there are certain things that you can bring up to get specific reactions. Let me give you a couple examples. So we do every year, except for the last two because of uh, the pandemic, we do every year this youth retreat called Epic. And Epic is one of my favorite times of the year. It's a student retreat where people from all over Stark County come together 
to learn about how God created us in his image, how there's a little bit of a problem, but in each of our lives, there's an opportunity at redemption. And now we are, we get to be a part of working towards restoration. We do that every year. We've taken two years off because of the pandemic, but this coming year will be like epic, like, I don't know, Taylor, what are we on? Like eight? Is it eight? Eight. Epic eight, right? And all of the epics are amazing. I love epic one. I love epic three, four, five, six, seven, and I'm going to love eight. No. You don't talk about epic two. You don't talk about epic two. If you've been around for a while, you know there are certain things you just don't talk about. And it's none of the things that society says don't talk about. It's epic two. You don't talk about that. And I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to be real with you. I'm not going to tell you. This is where this part of the story stops 100%. I'm not going to tell you because I know you heard me say you don't talk about it. But just know and understand that if you were there, am I exaggerating? Am I? Thank you. You don't talk about Epic 2. You may be at one of our leagues with some of our guys who have been around for a real long time. Gosh, they're in their mid-20s now, Dish. And you might witness somebody, I know it's rare, and I know you would never do it, but you might witness somebody swear. I know, I know, I know, I know. Guys, I know, okay? You might see somebody swear. You might hear somebody swear, right? It's hard to see swear. Okay, you might hear it. But you'll know that somebody's been around us for a really long time if they swear and immediately drop to the ground and do 10 push-ups. You might know, oh, you've been, you've been around for a while, right? To the outsider, you're like, that's like a really weird way of like working out your anger and your frustration. But if you've been around for a while, you know that since day one, that's been a rule. That if you swear, I mean, hey, swear, but you're going to do 10 push-ups and you're going to thank me because either you're going to stop swearing or you're going to be yoked. <laughs> you're welcome either way. And there have been days where leaders and students alike are doing push-ups. You might, you might be around and if you're around just a few individuals that used to meet in my living room specifically, you could ask them, how do you become a good disciple? And there are lots of biblical answers you could expect from them. But I'll tell you one that Zelly would say. He would say, to be a good disciple, you got to make a shot. And you don't know what that means. But I promise it's a really good answer. If you haven't been around, if you don't know the story, you might not understand why during spontaneous worship some, sometimes Rev has this one particular go-to song that he makes fit with any song. And it always gets a reaction. And you're like, why is that song so... You know the one, Rev. You know the one. 
alone that great name oh jesus jesus precious jesus we have the victory amen and it gets a reaction but listen but listen if you weren't in the gym when we had four sinfully ugly red rows of chairs no instruments, one week before launch, and no worship team. And all we had was Rev in front of like 30 people doing that acapella. You don't know how deep and meaningful it is in moments of spontaneous worship with a gym full of people as a reminder and a testimony to, from where we come from. If you haven't been around, if you don't know the full story, the reaction might seem weird to any of these things. Sometimes our reactions to things make a lot more sense when we consider what we've been through. Sometimes weird reactions fit perfectly when we know the full context of what happened for Sarah. God says, you're going to have a son, and she laughs. And I know that it's our traditional uh, posture and interpretation that she laughs because she's old. And she is. That in and of itself does sound ridiculous. That somebody in su at such an advanced age could bear a child. But if you know Sarah's story, you know there's something so much deeper behind that laugh. Sarah's story is not just about a really, really old woman miraculously conceiving a child, but it's one about purpose. It's one about identity. It's one about providence. The first time we meet Sarah, the first time we're introduced to Sarah in scriptures in Genesis chapter 11 as Sarai, just one letter, letter difference. Genesis chapter 11, verses 29 and 30 say that Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. I don't know. The daughter of Haran. Now Sarai, verse 30, was barren. She had no child. That's her introduction. That's her introduction. Sarai is Abram's wife, and she's barren. Nice to meet you. And that's especially unfortunate because Sarai actually has her own claim to the genealogy. She has her own claim in and of herself She's a member of that family. Now, I know what you might be thinking, and I'm going to encourage you that it's a conversation for another day. We're not going there today. So you mean to tell me, Pastor, that Abram and Sarai were related and they got married. Yes, that happened 
No, we're not talking about that today. I'm not hiding it. I'm very much admitting it to you. It's a complicated scenario for another day. The point is, Sarai had her own claim on the genealogy. Sarai had just as much right as any child on that genealogy to be listed as a descendant. But how is she listed first? She's listed as Abram's wife. And then the only other thing we learn about her is that she is barren. And the reason that this is notable is because in the patriarchal society, the cultural expectation was for a woman to fulfill two functions, as a wife and as a mother. And for her, she can't do that. Her inability to fulfill the expectation put on her by society would mean that the lineage, at least for Abram, would stop there. That it went no further. But then if you turn the page, you see in Genesis chapter 12 that the Lord says to Abram, go from your country, your kindred, your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name so great so that you will be a blessing. All of the families of the earth will be blessed by you. So in the same half of a breath that the text tells us Sarai can have no kids. The very, very, very next thing you read is God's promise to her husband that he will have kids. But where does that leave Sarai? She can have no kids. She already has to live with the fact that she carries that. She already has to live with the fact of people looking at Abram a particular way because he took a wife that can't have kids. She already has to carry the lack of the ability to fulfill that expectation with her. And then for God Almighty himself to come to her husband and say that you will bear kids, but not a readable mention of her name, where does that leave her headspace? Because she knows that cultural practice, if your wife can't have kids, is for you to be permitted to go outside of your marriage, conceive a child with somebody else, and for your wife to raise that child as her own. That's a permittable practice. And so she now becomes a workaround. What about me? What about my role? What's my purpose? I see you, God. Come to my husband and say, don't worry, your lineage will continue. That's wonderful. I see you saying that you're going to make a way. That's incredible. 
But what about me? What is my role in this big picture that you're trying to accomplish? Now, if we're real, you can already feel it in the room. That's a question we've all asked ourselves. What about my purpose? I can very evidently see what God is up to. I can see that people around me's lives are different because of God. I'm looking at so-and-so over there and the way that they're living into their faith and the things that God is doing in their life is so amazing. I can't help but wonder, what about my life? I'm connected to these things and to these people that talk so much about all the things that they're learning from God and all the things that the Lord is doing in their lives, but I have to wonder, what about my purpose? It's not hard to imagine how many people I talk to weekly that talk about the lack of purpose they feel in what they're doing. The lack of purpose they feel in the lifestyle that they're living. And this everlasting search for my role, my place, my purpose. And that's hard because when you don't know your purpose, and I'm talking about the God-given one. When you don't know your purpose, you leave yourself susceptible to other attacks from the enemy. There's this real nasty one we call comparison, right? This real nasty one that says, I see what they're doing over there. I'm trying to get like them. I'm trying to be on their level. I'm trying to live like they live. But then what that does, because to a certain extent, okay, it can be kind of admirable, I guess. But what that does is that then begins to communicate a backwards message about what you're doing wrong. About how, well, they're living that way because they have purpose. I'm not living that way. I must not. We do this weird thing where we make assumptions about God or about our journey based on things that have nothing to do with us. It's comparison. It leaves us open to attacks where the enemy can place, either through society or culture or your friend groups or your family, can place these expectations on top of you and then through the placement of those expectations, communicate to you that you're a failure. Communicate to you that there's something you're not doing that's good enough. Come on. Make it plain. Where is it that you struggle to find purpose? It's dangerous to listen to the enemy's voice. It's dangerous when we listen to that voice that says you don't have one or you haven't found it yet 
or you're not living up to it. And so you should just get out of the picture. That's dangerous. I rebuke that. Have you fallen into the trap of comparison? And as a result, you feel like you're not as good as the person next to you. Let me give you something real quick for free before before we move on, and that is this. Any expectation that is from the Lord, he is faithful to help you fulfill. Let me say that again for this side. I know they got it. Any expectation that is from the Lord, he is faithful to help you fulfill. So those expectations that you're carrying around, those weren't for you. Put those down. The ones that come from the Lord are the ones that he is faithful to help you fulfill. And now here's what happens. A short leap, right, to make when when we're questioning our purpose is for us to begin to then ask an even bigger question of who we are. Who am I? We begin to question our identity. A little bit further down in Genesis chapter 12, we see Abram and Sarai getting a little bit of a difficult situation. They're trying to get to Egypt on a path to where the Lord is trying to take them. They're trying to get into Egypt and they they have a little interaction with Border Patrol. Did you know that that was a problem in the Bible too? I don't know if they had like horses and ropes and stuff, but like this border patrol was serious. And so they get there. And it says when he was meaning Abram was about to enter Egypt, he says to Sarai, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. Oh, thank you, babe. Except that it's a comma right there and not a period. Fellas. That's a bad setup, okay? He says, I know that you're beautiful in appearance. Stop right there. But he didn't. He had to keep going. He said, and so what's going to happen is when the Egyptians see you, they're going to say, this is his wife. We want to keep her, so kill him. So in order to get through border patrol, I'm going to need you to tell them that I'm your brother. Because then when they take you in because you're beautiful, they'll honor the fact that I'm your brother and I get to survive. He literally says, so that my life may be spared for your sake. I had to have Rachel help me find a nice way to say this sentence. Abram trades his wife to save himself. That's the nice version of what I want to say. Abram trades his wife to save himself, so he gets to survive. But what happens to Sarai? She's taken to be somebody else's wife. Just imagine how that conversation went. Hey, I'm going to need you to tell them that you're my sister. Oh, I'm your sister now. Because when I was your sister... You wanted to make me your wife. And now that I'm your wife, now all of a sudden, when it's convenient for you, I'm your sister again. 
And then Pharaoh's going to meet me, and now I'm his wife? It's funny when you say it that way, but how traumatizing. Sarai loses her identity in the genealogy. Sarai loses her identity at the border. She's not getting it from her husband. She's not getting it from her family. Where is she supposed to get it from? Where is she supposed to receive her identity from? It's no wonder she has the reaction later on when somebody else has a child with Abram. And all of a sudden, she's not actually the mother of that kid. It's no wonder she has the reaction that she has. She's cruel and she's angry. She doesn't know who she is, who she was made to be. See, a regular attack that the enemy uses is to get us to feel distance from God, thus putting distance between his design and intended purpose for us and us, right? We see it all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Satan manipulates the situation to have Eve see distance between her and God and then convince her that there's something extra she needs to do to be like God, even though God had just said, you're made in my image. Well, I did this so that I could be more like you. What do you mean be more like me? I just told you you're more like me than anything else in creation. What do you mean you did this so your eyes would be open so that you would have knowledge and be able to see who you are? I just told you who you are and I'm the one that made you. Who better to tell you who you are than me? I have to believe that these instances of her identity being challenged is just playing over and over in Sarai's mind as she's taken to the palace to meet with Pharaoh. She's remembering all of the ways that her identity has been stripped from her. Right now, I know that you have questions about your purpose that likely are leading you to a place where you're asking about who you are. You're playing in your mind over and over the places and the times where you've had a reaction. And it's caused you to wonder, who am I? What's behind that? There are things in your family that, that put more questions in your mind than offer solutions when it comes to your identity. There are things that you've been through that put more questions in your mind as to who you really are. Now, one of my favorite things to do is to help people discover the wiring that God has designed them with. Because ultimately, that's where we're trying to get, right? That's how we get to purpose. That's how we discover identity, is we begin to learn about God, and then from what we know about God, we're able to discover how he has wired us. That's one of my favorite things to do, because what Satan is doing is he's putting that distance there. And so he's able to lie to you. He's able to confuse your wiring. He's able to deceive you about your wiring. 
He's able to tell you things like you're an angry and cynical person. No, you are not an angry and cynical person. Perhaps you have a holy discontent that matches Jesus's sense of justice. But you also have some hurt that's gone undealt with. See how that's different? He'll tell you things like you're a pushover. You're too sensitive. People take advantage of you. No. You were designed with a high capacity to love and care for people. But you have not yet discovered what healthy boundaries and life rhythm looks like. Satan will tell you, you're an insensitive jerk who only respects people for the things that they bring to the table. (laughs) Sorry, I just remembered the email that I got that said, That exact thing. No. God has given you the energy to be a fire starter. He has given you the energy to start new things. But you haven't worked out how to put that energy towards God's kingdom as opposed to your own empire. See, when we commit to finding our identity in God and who he made us to be, how he has creatively designed us, God is faithful to reveal to us the true imprint he put on our lives. He'll show you these are the These are the things that I've specifically crafted you to be able to do. You have reason to have confidence in the fact that you, you give life in this way. And that's on purpose. That is my design. God is faithful when we seek him for our identity to show us the true imprint. Genesis 17, God says to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, watch how this flips, as for Sarai, your wife, don't call her Sarai no more. That's that's not her name. But Sarah shall be her name. I shall call her princess. I shall call her my princess. I shall call her my princess who's about to continue a lineage because I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. (laughs) That's who you are, Sarah. That's who you really are. Not what the genealogy tells you. Not always what your husband tells you. Got to do better, fellas. It's who I tell you. 
says, this is who you are, kings of nations. Well, they already wrote down that I was barren, and I heard y'all going to use that later. Ah, I'll fix that. He said, kings of nations will come from you. See, when we find our identity in God, we will also be able to experience his providence. Genesis 21 says, The Lord visited Sarah directly. It said, The Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken him. See, the writer had some insight here. He knew Sarah was old too, but he said in Abraham's old age. Because we ain't talking about hers. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. You see how that switches? So Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, comma, whom Sarah bore him, comma, Isaac. Already it's different than the genealogy. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son. One last jab in his old age. God oversaw and overcame all these situations to make sure Sarah would have a son. After all she's been through, questions of purpose, questions of identity, no wonder, all that trauma, no wonder when she hears Sarah will have a kid, no wonder she laughs. It's not just about her age. It's about the things that she's been through. Right now, God has a promise for your life that you can't hear because you're laughing. No, nah, no way. God has that for me. God has that for them in that section two over. But God doesn't have that for me right now. God has a promise for your life that you're not ready to hit you yet because you'll laugh. But look how the Lord redeemed said laugh. Sarah says, laughter is for me. Who would have thought? <laughs> Who would have thought that this would happen? And God continued that oversight. That would be an amazing story by itself. After everything Sarah's been through, after all the time she had to wait, after all of the travels and the weird things and the ways that she's been taken and the ways that, after all that, she finally has a son. That is an amazing story in and of itself. But God's providence is so amazing that it doesn't stop there. It keeps going. That story, that providence keeps going. 
until eventually a young girl that we'll talk about in a few weeks who'd never done the thing that you have to do to conceive a child miraculously is pregnant with a baby that she's told by a visitor in the night is going to be the savior of humanity. God's providence extends beyond that. To the author in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11, who writes, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him, meaning God, faithful who had promised. Isn't it amazing how in Hebrews, thousands of years after this story takes place, how the author of Hebrews remembers Sarah not for the traumatic things that she's been through, but for the faith that she was shown when she was told that she would have a child. That is to say, when you trust in the infinite and eternal providence of our Lord, you are remembered in eternity, not for the trauma not for the things that you've been through. Not for the way that your purpose and your integrity has been questioned. Not for the way that your place has been taken from you. Not for the way that your identity was spoken more to you than that what you heard from the Lord. You remembered not for those things, but you're welcomed in eternity for your faith. Where is it that you need to trust God's divine guidance and oversight? Because church, I can think of a lot of places. I can think of a lot of places where the story looked like a dead end. I can think of a lot of dead ends that we would have gotten to and just packed it up and gone home and faced the consequences. I'm not going to talk about a lack of resilience right now, but I can think of a lot of things that any of us would have faced and we would have given up. I'm thinking about running specifically from an oppressor, somebody who's, who's kept you in change, chains for de- generations. And as you run away, because that is your only hope, you get to a body of water that you don't have a boat to cross. And I can think about giving up and going home, but then I'm reminded about how God parted the waters for the people to be set free. I can think about an anointing on a king named David who was told you would be king. And then when he gets there for his first day of work, the current king, the current boss said, "Uh uh-uh, you're not coming in here with that energy. Matter of fact, you're fired before you even start. And if I see you again, I'm going to put you in the ground. And he starts running. I can think of David writing countless things about fearing for his life and not knowing if he would ever survive to see the promise. But then I'm reminded. I'm reminded of the ways that despite his own things going on, God holds him up as a great king. I can, I can think of countless accounts 
where Jesus was chased out of communities, where crowds spoke out against him. I can think of countless times where I would have given up, where the threat of the people around me would have caused me to curve what I was saying. I can think of the crowds in his own hometown that tried to run him off a cliff because they didn't like the way he was talking. I can think of the officers that arrested him, not because he did anything, but because his message threatened fragility. I can can think of the crowd that stood before Pilate and yelled, cancel him, sorry, crucify him. I can think of the severe beatings that he took, the way that he bled out on the cross, the way that he was wrapped up, the way they wrapped dead people up back then, put into a tomb with a serious stone that nobody else could could move on their own over the site where his body was supposed to lay. I can think of countless places in Jesus' story that it should have been the end. But then I'm reminded. I'm reminded about how three days later, that stone was in a different spot. That cloth was neatly folded on the table where his body once lied. I can think of the fact that that dead body wasn't there and wasn't dead after all. I can think of countless places where our story should have ended, but we're still here. I can think of countless places that we face right now where it would be real easy and justifiable for us to give up And say, man, forget this. I'm going to go in a different direction. But what I came here to tell you this morning, if you hear nothing else, is that God's providence is so much bigger than any of the things that we're facing. God has provided for centuries. And his intention is not to stop all the way till we get to glory. When you don't know, when you don't know the things we've been through, when you don't know the things we've been through, you can make short-sighted comments or assumptions about the things we do and the way that we react when you don't know the things that we've been through. I want us specifically to be a church that leaves people super curious That means not only what we do collectively, but what you do in your individual life. Be a person, be a church, be a representative that leaves people curious. Because we don't fall into the trap of comparison or the trap of being reactionary to every single thing that happens because we know what God has asked us to do. I don't need to go be up there. I don't need to go... Go, go, go have something to say about these things. I don't need to worry about what so-and-so is doing because I know what God asked me to do. Yeah. I want us to be a people that leaves people curious because, 
because we rise above the constantly culturally shifting narratives of who we need to be and the things we need to think because we know who God made us to be. I don't need to look for Twitter to Twitter for my identity because I know who God told me to be. I want to be a church that doesn't scoff at the dreams that he lays on our people's hearts. That nothing is too big or scary because we can personally testify to his providence, to God's guidance and oversight in our lives. I would invite you to join me in trying that. To leave people curious. Let them think. That's a weird reaction. Because they don't know. They don't know the things that God has taken you through. May your confidence rest in the Lord's purpose, the Lord's identity, and the Lord's providence for your life. Not everyone else's. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to be together. God, we thank you that while we're together, you speak. Lord, I pray that, that the things that you have let resonate in this service from you would stick and everything else will go away. Because, God, we want to be a part of the story. As I wonder, as I wonder if Sarah felt put out by the things that she experienced. I resonate because I know it comes from a place of wanting to be a part of the story. Wanting to be a part of what you're doing. Lord, we desperately want to be a part of what you're doing. So take us, Father, from the current mindset we find ourselves in, from the current situations that we find ourselves in, from the wandering, from the lostness. God, we lay the things down that we've been holding on to because you did not tell us to pick those up. And Lord, we give you the freedom to take us where it is that you have us going, that you see our lives headed. And God, I pray that we would stand in the end to testify, to offer testimony to the Lord's providence. We pray these things. In Jesus' name, all who believe say, bless up.